But I still saw that as far as people got was these basic efforts. Some people still said things like this. Hey, I still have food intolerances. I can't eat nuts or beans, legumes, or FODMAPs, or nightshades, or histamine-containing foods. That was a common one that, that persisted despite all these changes. Or they lost 70 pounds, but were stuck with another 35 to go, and it wouldn't come off. Or their rheumatoid arthritis was so much better, they're off their biologic, saving several thousand, several thousand dollars a month in their copay. They're off the prednisone, but they have to go back and forth with other anti-inflammatory drugs because they're having minor flares. So in other words, I saw great improvements, but some residual problems. This, and that include those basic efforts at rebuilding a microbiome. So that's when I dove into the microbiome. And Ben, I, I, I was astounded at how many incredible things can emerge with intelligent management of the microbiome. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Prokolsky. Today, we welcome the incredible cardiologist and New York Times bestselling author, William Davis, to the podcast. You may know Dr. Davis as the author of the enormous hit, Wheat Belly. He's one of the first people to interest, introduce us to the concept of avoidance of gluten and wheat and things that are ultimately causing systemic distress. After 25 years of practicing cardiology, it became clear to Dr. Davis that he was in the business of dispensing prescription drugs, and he decided to change his path. Uh, he is world-renowned now for being an authority when it comes to all things health optimization, specifically gut health, specifically helping us understand the microbiome. His latest book, Super Gut, I'm just sitting right here on my desk, he actually demonstrates how just in four weeks you can restore an incredible amount of robust diversity in the microbiome, and we talk about that and so much more in today's podcast, why the microbiome is so important to your long-term health, how you can eat to ultimately prevent any negative effects and ultimately to heal it, if that's what you need to do. And what he says is the number one root cause of almost all disease and what to do about it, why heart health and the microbiome are so interconnected, they're inextricably linked. The problem with most commercial probiotics and maybe why you should or shouldn't take them. We also discuss the microbiome imbalances that are likely to occur in about 50% of people and ultimately the best treatment for it and so much more. Thank you to William Davis for joining me on today's podcast. You guys are going to love his conversation, his energy. He's a great, great man, great conversationalist. Just really enjoyed today's podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Bukolsky. Today, we are joined with a legend in the space of cardiology and microbiome, ultimately gut health optimization cardiologist, Dr. William Davis. Thank you for joining me, sir. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. You've got an incredible background, an incredible business acumen, an incredible uh, background in, in medicine, numerous New York Times bestsellers. You're someone who's certainly at the tip of the spear when it comes to optimization of the microbiome. It seems to be where you've kind of carved your your niche over the last certain number of years, maybe moving from internal medicine, what seemed like it was your initial area of focus to cardiology and now into the microbiome. Is that correct? Yeah. Throwing some nutrition and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I think we all nowadays have had several careers over our lifetimes. And right now I'm dealing with the microbiome. I got to tell you, Ben, it is the most fascinating of all things I've ever dealt with. I think it's a, the concept of it's the black box, right? It's like you put something in, you're not quite sure what's going to come out. And I think that's why someone with a complex mind like yourself or, or a complex thinker enjoys getting in there because it's it's this untapped territory. It's like walking into the rainforest and going, I'm trying to label and name all of these plants and species that exist here. And it's, you know, it's a lifetime work. Oh, that's a great analogy. That's exactly right. I, I cringe, Ben, to think how little we knew before we started to factor in the participation of the microbiome, it, it, any disease, name a disease, type 2 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, depression, uh, Alzheimer's dementia, Parkinson's disease, coronary disease, atrial fibrillation, on and on and on. You cannot get it right unless you address the contribution of the microbiome. Do you know, I'm, I'm actually dealing with that pretty significantly right now. So I, I coach a small number of high performers and yeah, you optimize a lot of things. We can optimize for lifestyle, we can optimize for nutrition, we can optimize workouts. But there's there are some people, you know, probably 20, 20-25% of people, results are just okay. You're like, why is this person not getting results? And then we take we take an analysis of the microbiome or we ultimately look at the gut health and there's always something there. Like it seems like 10 out of 10 times when they, that person gets stuck 
and they can't get the results they're after. It's like, oh, we know where we need to look. And, you know, we're kind of reversing our process now to where we look at the microbiome right off the bat so that we can start saying, hey, what do we know? And the challenge that I'm running into, if I'm being honest, one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you today is there's not a lot of experts out there who are actually giving you valuable actionable information. Everyone's like, oh, take a take a probiotic or hey, eat some fermented foods or hey, remove the remove the toxic burden. You're like, yeah, we did all that. What now? Right. And so that was one of the greatest things that made me take interest in your books and in your information. If you're somebody who's actually at the tip of the spear and diving into it and giving us research and giving us actionable steps that we can actually see progress with. And so uh yeah, I want to dig into maybe how you made the shift because I think there's a correlation that I'd like for you to draw how you made the shift from cardiology into the microbiome. I'm curious if, if it was because you drew the correlation there between cardiac health and, and microbiome. Well, it all started when I wanted to help people stop having heart attacks and dying, you know. And of course, uh, this really occurred after my mom died of sudden cardiac death after her successful two-vessel coronary angioplasty. This is about 27 years ago or so. And so, Back then, and this reigns true today, if you said, hey, my dad had a heart attack at 57 and died, and I'm, I'm 52, right? And I want to know, is that in my future? Well, if you go to John Q. Primary Care, he's not going to know. He's going to tell you some BS answer, like test your cholesterol, which is useless, useless, absolutely useless. Or ask about family history. So you're at risk. Okay, but what do you do about it? All they have in their treatment armamentarium, right, is our statin drugs and related things. Cut your saturated fat. We help publish those data. That does not work. It does not work. And so one of the things I, I started doing is looking for other causes. For instance, vitamin D deficiency. When I started addressing vitamin D deficiency many years ago, it was the first time I saw coronary disease regress, reverse. Not completely, but partially. Uh, I also rejected this idea of testing for cholesterol and started doing lipoprotein testing. Cholesterol is meant to be an indirect way to assess lipoproteins, fat-carrying proteins in the bloodstream that lead to heart disease. Well, we can measure lipoproteins. We don't need that 1958-1960 beat-up old outdated method called cholesterol testing. And if you do lipoprotein testing like NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, take your plasma, a clear part of your blood, put it in a, uh, a magnet, uh, NMR, MRI device, same thing, and you can see what's in it. And we've been able to do that. I've been doing it for 25 years. Hmm. And you see that there's a great excess of small LDL particles in people with coronary disease. And this has been borne out in 50 clinical trials that small LDL is a major predictor of, of coronary of heart disease. Well, there's only two things that cause small LDL particles, grains and sugars, period. Hmm. <laughs> so that, so we're, we're told by official agencies to reduce heart disease risk, cut fat and saturated fat. There is no such science that shows that. There is no evidence to support that. There are some observations that support it, but there's no real uh, clinical science to support that. So I took grains and sugars, wheat grains and sugars out of the diet. I saw small LDL particles drop from like 2,400 nanomoles per liter, particle count per volume, to zero. But then people started saying things like, I lost 63 pounds. I don't need to take my metformin or my uh, other drugs for diabetes because I'm not diabetic anymore. My rheumatoid arthritis is gone. My psoriasis receded. My depression is lifted. Uh, I lost 11 inches off my waist. On and on and on. I stumbled on this. It also became clear that it was uh, important to address several nutrient deficiencies common to modern people, not to the diet, but to modern life, like vitamin D. If you live in a northern climate, work indoors, wear clothes in public, you don't get vitamin D. Magnesium, because we filter our drinking water, we have to because water has sewage in it and other things. But water filtration removes all magnesium. Iodine, omega fatty acids, similar issues. But I saw that we also address the microbiome in a very basic way. A high-potency multi-species probiotic, prebiotic fibers, related things to nourish microbes, and some fermented foods. But I still saw that as far as people got with these basic efforts, some people still said things like this, hey, I still have food intolerances. I can't eat nuts or beans, legumes, or FODMAPs, or nightshades, or histamine-containing foods. That was a common one that, that persisted despite all these changes. Or they lost 70 pounds, but were stuck with another 35 to go, and it wouldn't come off. 
or their rheumatoid arthritis was so much better. They're off their biologic, saving several thousand, several thousand dollars a month in their copay. They're off the prednisone, but they have to go back and forth with other anti-inflammatory drugs because they're having minor flares. So in other words, I saw great improvements, but some residual problems. This, and that include those basic efforts at rebuilding a microbiome. So that's when I dove into the microbiome. And Ben, I, I, I was astounded at how many incredible things can emerge with intelligent management of the microbiome. I know we don't want to spend too much time on this today, but I don't want to gloss over this because this this sounds like, you know, coming from the horse's mouth from a cardiologist speaking about statins and fats, because to be honest, even someone at my level is still getting so much conflicting information. You have people out there who are seen as, as the experts in the industry saying that, hey, you know what, statins may still be a good solution for some people. And some people are still saying, hey, you know what, saturated fat is probably still bad for you if, if you're someone who wants to optimize for cardio, cardiac outputs or, or sorry, cardiac um, health ultimately. So, you know, if we could just go a little bit deeper into that, like, is there no benefit to, to statins in your, in your experience and what the data says? And also like, shoot, you know, saturated fat, if we could talk just a little bit about that, because you know, I, I, I try to ask as many people as I can to try to get to the bottom of this this information. So with the statin uh, cholesterol drugs, so if, if we if, if you and I went back to the science, the published evidence, one, it's almost all paid for by the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, yeah. That's a big problem, right? So in other words, if you if you're paying the twenty three million dollars to fund the study, it's likely to turn out in your favor, yeah. because the researchers want to make you happy. That's just human nature. So the great wealth of statin-supported data is generated by the manufacturers. Two, they use something called relative risk. They say things like this. So if we had 100 people and they took placebo and there were two heart attacks, and we had another 100 people who took a drug, took a drug and there was one heart attack, if we were the pharmaceutical industry, we would say 50% reduction in heart attack, right. which of course is very misleading because we hear that, oh, wow. 50% of all heart attacks are going to occur and not going to happen, of course, which is not true. And so uh, they have a minor effect, maybe a 1% effect over five years. In other words, a very trivial effect. Now, think about this too. So we have agencies telling us to eat, to follow a lifestyle, cut your fat, eat more healthy whole grains, food industry also selling you soft drinks at the same time and white bun, all that stuff. So we have a lifestyle advocated by various agencies that causes heart disease. And then we throw a drug at you that has a minor effect. And of course, there has been, if statin drugs are so successful, if heart healthy diets have been so successful, why there has there been no reduction in heart disease? So a lot of problems with that, with that argument. But the real tragedy, Ben, is if you focus on those things, cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, statin drugs, it takes your attention away from the real things that cause heart disease. And so no one's paying attention to insulin resistance or inflammation or the thing that comes from a disrupted intestinal microbiome, endotoxemia. If you pay attention to those things, you have magnificent control of cardiovascular risk and you don't need to, and of course, ignore the silly dietary guidelines and you have magnificent control over cardiovascular risk. I want to take this moment to give a shout out to our show sponsor for today, Paleo Valley. Thank you very much to Paleo Valley for supporting the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I've been experimenting with their products for over 12 months now, and I can honestly say they bring the highest quality ingredients available. They refuse to cut corners, both with their processing, manufacturing, and sourcing of ingredients. They have incredible passion, not only for environmental restoration, animal welfare, but for delivering us the highest quality snacks, and ultimately quick source protein products that we can find. I've tried their beef sticks, which I enjoy. There's a grass-fed, tastes amazing. Uh, last night, I actually enjoyed two of their protein bars. I had the Red Velvet, which I suggest everyone try. They've also got an incredible bone broth product that is delicious. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you to Paleo Valley. You can support Paleo Valley by heading over to paleovalley.com slash muscle. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com slash muscle paleo valley slash muscle to get 15 percent off your first order and now back to the podcast with dr william davis so i know this is a loaded question we can go along a long way with this one but i'm curious what your response is to if i say what is it about the microbiome that has such an incredible influence on 
cardiac events or say cardiac function, just from a high level, you know, if you could just start high level and then we can chunk down into certain areas. Well, to, to, to get your arms around that, Ben, it's important to recognize a few things. So we've all, as a society, been overexposed to antibiotics, to glyphosate in the herbicide Roundup. Glyphosate's an herbicide, but it's also an antibiotic, but it's a peculiar antibiotic. It's, it's, it is effective in killing off beneficial species and ineffective in killing off non-beneficial species. So it essentially selects for unhealthy, mostly fecal microbes. And then there's other herbicides and pesticides. There's emulsifying agents uh, like polysorbate 80 and ice cream and salad dressings. There's synthetic sweeteners. There's chlorinated drinking water, uh, stomach acid blocking drugs, anti-inflammatory drugs. All these things have conspired to introduce massive change in the gastrointestinal microbiome, but mostly loss of hundreds of beneficial species. So of the thousand or plus species in the GI microbiome, we've lost several hundred. And they performed important functions. So when you lose the important species, these are species like lactobacilli, bifidobacteria, fecalobacterium. When you lose those guys, the unhealthy, mostly fecal microbes like E. coli, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, uh, Salmonella, oh, by the way, also species of food poisoning, these my fecal microbes proliferate. And by my estimation, in one out of two people, so it's everywhere, these fecal microbes have ascended into the small bowel, 24 feet of small bowel. Some people call it fecalization. So, and you can measure this, you can prove it. So 24 feet plus the four or five feet of colon, you've got about 30 feet of fecal microbes now, microbes don't last, they don't live for decades. They live for hours at most, sometimes just an hour. So if you had trillions of microbes in 30 feet of gastrointestinal tract turning over rapidly, when they die, some of the components of their cell walls will enter the bloodstream. And that's a very important process, finally validated by a European group in 2007 uh, called endotoxemia, because the breakdown products of microbes is called endotoxin. So, and that's been since corroborated many, many, many times, hundreds of times. We now know that endotoxemia tells us how microbes in the GI tract can be experienced in the brain as depression, anxiety, Parkinson's disease, dementia, or in muscles and joints as fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis, or as a metabolic condition like insulin resistance, prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver, high triglycerides. So in other words, just about every modern chronic condition has to be re-examined in light of the contribution of the microbiome via endotoxemia. Does endotoxemia have, have with it the necessary prerequisite of you must have some semblance of leaky gut? or, or is, So if, you're, if your gut is intact and it's a healthy GI tract, does the, do these endotoxins just, just get excreted? Or is it everyone who's getting these endotoxins is going to have some, some semblance of endotoxemia? Two big factors in causing endotoxemia, gut leak, some people say. One is the gliadin protein of wheat. We know that with good confidence because of uh, Dr. Alessio Fasano's work, very, very pioneering work, that the gliadin protein in everybody who consumes uh, wheat and related grains increases the intestinal permeability, including to endotoxin. And then another thing to know is that those fecal microbes are the ones that have all that endotoxin. Mm. Another thing to know is that, so if your fecal microbes are in the colon, the colon tolerates that very easily. It has a thick two-layer mucus barrier as it's tough to penetrate. But if those microbes get access to your small intestine, the small intestine is not used to that. It's not, a, not adapted to that, to fecal microbes. The small intestine has a much more fragile, thinner, single-layer mucus barrier. So when those fecal microbes are in the small bowel, they're much more able to penetrate, breach the lining, and get in your bloodstream. So there's a number of factors that are operating in modern people that have increased the frequency, the severity of endotoxemia. That's interesting. So as far as common ailments, and you're, you're mentioning SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, that's one that's, you said it, I've heard you say it's like one in two people. That's unbelievable as far as the, the prevalence of that. I would love to dive into that, but what else uh, as far as like gut issues are people experiencing? Is that just like the main one we got to watch out for is, you know, uh, how much of a concern is, 
you know, yeast overgrowth or, or parasite overgrowth or, or dysbiosis. All, all, all issues, you're exactly right, Ben. So among that list you just had listed, a fungal overgrowth is a big deal, uh, much underappreciated, but recent evidence is showing, oh yeah, fungal overgrowth in the code, but also just like SIBO, CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth is a big deal. Uh, intestinal methanogen overgrowth, uh, archaea species, another thing that's becoming clear. By the way, the thing that made me change my mind about the frequency of SIBO. I thought SIBO was an uncommon thing till this thing came out, the AIR device, uh, A-I-R-E. And so it came out in 2018 and it's a way of mapping where in the GI tract microbes are living. I have thousands of people doing it and then I was shocked that it was uncommon for someone to test negative. Now you might say, well, maybe the test is wrong. Well, people would test positive and has has everything to do with timing when you release hydrogen gas. Uh, not necessarily the amount, but the timing. Somebody would take a therapeutic program and they'd come back, test negative, and they say, well, now my depression is lifted finally, or my joint pain finally went away completely, or I finally lost that 35 pounds where I was stuck. In other words, the residual problem, my food intolerances to histamine-containing fluids, FODMAPs, nice, went away. And so it became clear, yeah, this is everywhere. By the way, when I say one in two people, the way I got that number was I went through all the science, not my science, other people's science, studies that ask questions like this. Of the 160 million people in the US who have fatty liver, that's true by the way, 50% of the population now is fatty liver. What proportion test positive for SIBO? Well, 50%. That data is pretty good. Well, if there's 160 million people with fatty liver and 50% have SIBO, that's 80 million right there. How about the people with uh, who are obese and type 2 diabetic. That combines around 100 million. Shockingly, about 50% test positive for C. Well, that's another 50 million or so. How about the people with irritable bowel syndrome? There's 60 to 70 million people in the US with irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. Well, the numbers vary depending on that study, but roughly about 40%. So that's another, what, 24 million people. Now there's overlap in those groups. Overweight diabetics with fatty liver. But if you go through the whole list, neurodegenerative disorders, autoimmune diseases, fibromyalgia, depression, Alzheimer's dementia, go through all and ask what proportion tests positive for SIBO, you'll get to 160 million really fast. And so that's where my one out of two Americans comes from. It is, it is, and then having this access to this consumer device, in my mind, confirmed it. It's, it's everywhere. So it sounds like, and you could be correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like the big two are going to be IBS and SIBO, and I'm I'm curious if you could differentiate between those two, and ultimately what causes them independently. So I know I know people who have both, but I wouldn't know what ultimately is the reason why they got those ailments. So there's a lot. There's a long list of reasons, like we talked about earlier, exposure yeah. to antibiotics. Yeah, but sp- uh, there's specific things that would predispose one person to one and not the other. There's also yet yeah, there's genetic susceptibility to the IBS part of it. A lot of IBS is just SIBO, but there seems to be also, Mark Pimentel at Cedar Sinai has done a lot of this work. He's done a very good job of showing us that some people have IBS that may not be SIBO that's post-infectious. You, you had a bad case of food poisoning, or you had a viral gastroenteritis, and it induced SIBO. I'm sorry, uh, IBS. Uh, oddly, if you go on an all-expense-paid all vacation in Mexico, and you get open bar and, and you're drinking too many margaritas, three days of a sugary drink can give you IBS. So there's a lot of things that go, but it is clear that a lot of IBS is really SIBO. That's why I know in the US, you'll see commercials for rifaximin for IBS. Well, rifaximin is an antibiotic. Why would IBS respond to an antibiotic? Because it's SIBO. A lot of the cases of IBS are SIBO. Mechanistically within SIBO, it's this, it sounds like it's this backing up for, of the bacteria, the fecal bacteria from the colon into the small intestine. Is there something other than the, all these these you know environmental and lifestyle interventions that you've mentioned that's causing this backup process? Is it just the the overall prevalence of these fecal ba- bacteria because they're maybe more prevalent than they should be as far as ratios? And they just they're just too many and they back up. What exactly would you say are the kind of primary reasons why that way this would just kick off. So loss of those beneficial microbes. Those beneficial microbes suppressed mm. 
the ascendance, the climbing up of fecal microbes. If you take a stomach acid blocking drug, an H2 blocker or a PPI like Prilosec, Protonix, Asifex, the stomach acid is a very effective barrier to oral microbes and food microbes and to ascending mi fecal microbes. When you, when you don't have stomach acid, whether it's from taking one of those drugs or it's from hypochlorhydria because you ate wheat and the gliadin protein caused your uh, loss of your parietal cells that produce acid or from H. pylori, the microbe that infects the stomach and impairs its ability to make stomach acid. When you lose stomach acid, it's an open door invitation to fecal microbes to climb up and for all microbes to colonize the upper GI tract. So it's a kind of a double duty. If you take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug like ibuprofen, you cause intestinal inflammation and that changes the microbiome. Uh, there's a long list of these things. It's not just one thing. It's many, many things that have conspired to do this. Now, the, that's the bad news. The good news is you can achieve extraordinary things by restoring the lost microbes. So you may, I, I think you're familiar with my my favorite microbe in the world, which is Lactobacillus reuteri. Yep. So lost by the vast majority of modern people, even though raccoons have it, skunks have it, chipmunks have it, uh, indigenous human populations have it, but we've lost it. And when you restore it, incredible things happen. It takes up residence in the entire GI tract, by the way, from mouth to anus, not just colon, but the entire 30 feet plus of your GI tract. And it sends a signal to your brain for the hypothalamus to release the hormone oxytocin, the hormone of love and empathy. So people who do this say things like, I love my partner. I feel closer to my partner. I feel closer to my family. I'm more tolerant of my coworkers. I accept the opinions of other people more readily. Isn't that cool? Uh, I'm more generous. Uh, ladies love it because uh, they get smoother skin, moister skin. Uh, ladies who do this stop using moisturizers because they get normal moisture. They get smoother skin with reduced wrinkles. Uh, it takes a few weeks to develop. Uh, guys love it because it increases strength and muscle mass dramatically sometimes. There's an increase in libido, increase in testosterone in males, increase in vaginal moisture and sensation in females. There's deepening of sleep, extended periods of REM sleep, and acceleration of healing, preservation of bone density. And, and Ben, this is one microbe. But there's another aspect of rotorized behavior, and that is because it takes up residence in the small bowel, as, as well as the entire length of the GI tract. When it takes up residence in the small bowel, it produces what are called bactericins. These are natural antibiotics effective against many of the species of SIBO. So I think the loss of roiderite and other microbes, another one is Lactobacillus gasseri, is probably a big part of the reason why stool microbes have been allowed to ascend into the small bowel. So restoring those lost microbes is extremely powerful, not just for more muscle and libido and all that, but also for pushing back SIBO. So I know you've got some handy dandy little recipes that hopefully you share with us later, but I'm curious how you came across that, you know, understanding these are specific strains as being the most influential because the list of, of potential benefits is enormous. And there's no, no one else to my to my experience is, is speaking, speaking about these things. So I'm curious if it's through your own research or if it's through, uh, you know, PubMed data or like, where's it, where's this information coming from? I know you've done a lot of work on your own with your clients. I'm curious kind of how you discovered it to begin with. Uh, both. We have several clinical trials going on, but the original studies came from, not my data, from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Very interesting, Ben. It was a cancer group. They were investigating the anti-cancer effects of lactobacillus reuteri in a mouse. So they were giving this microbe to mice in their drinking water and noticed that within a week, they had rich, luxuriant fur. So like, what the heck? It turns out they were producing a lot more sebum, the moisturizing compound in skin. And so they studied these mice and they found out that if they were wounded, they made a wound in their skin, they healed 50% faster. So healing time cut in half. They found that the healing tissue was stronger, that there was less susceptibility to infection. There was a uh, accelerated transition from neutrophils to lymphocytes, in case anybody wants to know. There was a huge increase in testosterone, growth hormone. There was an increase in grooming and mating behavior. The 
which in humans would be libido. They also did another study. So exhaustive, elegant, wonderful studies. They did another study where they gave two groups of mice a crappy diet meant to mimic a fast food diet. White flour, hydrogenated oils, fried foods, etc. Well, they gave one group just a crappy diet. They got fat. They lost their hair. They stopped mating. Uh, they got old fat and died. They gave another group, same crappy diet, and ruteri. Those mice stayed slender, thick <laughs> fur, mated and played with each other until death. They stayed young until death. And that caught my attention. Wow. So now here's the crazy thing that happened. I got hold of the microbe they used. It, it was, it's a commercial microbe from a company called BioGaia, and the product is called Gastrus, G-A-S-T-R-U-S. And that product is made for babies because it reduces colic, you know, fussiness, reduces regurgitation of breast milk or formula. So, okay, not that interesting. Maybe a little reduction in diarrhea after an antibiotic, not that interesting. But it was made for infants, so the counts of micros was really low. So I did this thing where I made, it's not yogurt, but we call it yogurt. It looks and smells like yogurt. But we, it's a way to propagate the microbe a thousandfold using a, a prolonged fermentation. I use half and half, organic half and half. We ferment for 36 hours. Rotorite doubles every three hours. And so if we did like commercial yogurt making where they ferment for four to six hours, we'd have nothing. So I fermented for 36 hours, 12 doublings. We counted the microbes using something called flow cytometry, and we get about 250 to 300 billion microbes per half cup serving. And when people started to eat this yogurt, we saw everything that was seen in mice corroborated in humans. Hmm. That is, all those emotional effects, muscle, hair, skin, sleep, libido, healing, etc. All that stuff so far has held true in humans. Now, we're, we have a series of human clinical trials. Our first trial is almost finished. That's for the skin effects. We're measuring, for instance, the thickness of the dermis using high-resolution skin ultrasound, uh, moisture using something called a coniometer, and then uh, a dermatologist can rate your wrinkle depth uh, using the computer-assisted program. Our next study is going to be a vaginal study. to look at vaginal moisture and libido and urinary function. Next series of trials after that is our orthopedic trials to see if we can rebuild joint cartilage. So we got some really cool, and there's a bunch of others down the road. There's only so much you can do in a lifetime. But Ben, I, I think we've come on to something. I believe it's, an, I think it's a stretch to say it's a new age in health. Not health care, because health care is corrupt. Health care is the business of generating revenues to profit insiders through products and procedures. Health is what you and I do, is trying to help people become healthy with nutrition, nutrients, microbiome strategies, but not stinking pharmaceuticals and procedures. Yeah. So where does this, this microbe, I've got a number of questions here, but the first thing that comes to mind is where does it exist naturally in nature? Like if all these animals have it, is it prevalent in our soil, certain foods, in the air, in, in the ocean? Like where would we find this in its naturally occurring state? So, rotari is adapted to the mammalian GI tract. So, some non-mammalians also, like chickens, have it. But if, if we were to sequence the microbiome, say, of a deer, it has rotari, or a moose, <laughs> or a raccoon, or a squirrel. They all have it. If you and I went to the deep jungles in New Guinea and encountered people who've never taken antibiotics or wearing loincloths, and only three generations ago were cannibals, and we sequence their microbiome. They all have rotari. So, in other words, it suggests that rotari is essential, or at least a big part of mammalian life, including Homo sapiens. Yet we've lost it. And there's more that we've lost, but that's just one of the best examples of what happens when you lose an important microbe and what can happen when you restore an important microbe. That's the first microbe I chose to play with. Uh, it turns out to be probably the most important microbe, or at least at the top of the list of all. There's some other very important microbes, not all of which we can actually obtain, either because no one's commercialized it yet, or because it dies upon exposure to um, oxygen, uh, the so-called obligate anaerobes. So, but that technology is, is evolving because there's two species, Acromantia mucinophila, and these names are crazy, I know, Ben, and Fecalobacterium prausnitzii. 
These are two very important microbes that die upon exposure to oxygen. So some of the science is coming out that if you coat them, like with a polysaccharide, you spray on them, you can keep them from dying and you can craft them into a probiotic. You can't ferment them, but you can craft them into a probiotic. So just to answer that question, they only exist in the GI tract. There's no natural um, occurrence in nature. It's not like I can go out and consume something. Because I'm just curious where where you're extracting it from, or maybe where you're, you know, this this company, Gastris, where is that naturally sourced from? It was originally sourced from the breast milk of a woman living in the highlands of Peru. <laughs> so this is true. <laughs> now, there's other microbes, for instance, very beneficial ones like Lactobacillus plantarum mm. or Pediococcus pentasaceus or Pediococcus acylactici or Leuconostoc mesenteritis. I know these names are nuts, but these live on the surface of vegetables like cabbage or tomatoes. And that's why when you ferment, vegetables, you can add a starter culture or you can just rely on the microbes resident on the surface of that of that vegetable and it'll be those microbes. Those are very beneficial. So those are naturally occurring in plant matter, but they can also at least transiently pass through your GI tract, provide a lot of uh, beneficial effects. Uh, there's also some soil microbes. There's a lot of malarkey out there. One of the things, sadly, Ben, is the probiotic market is so competitive now that there's a lot of gimmickry going on, people making ridiculous claims like you must get only soil-based spore-forming microbes to be better. That's nonsense. That's fiction. It's absolute made-up fiction. That is not true. Or we double encapsulate our probiotic to make it survive into the cold. Why would you do that when one out of two people have microbes populating the 30 feet or 24 feet of their small bowel? You want it to release in the small bowel, stomach and small bowel. For instance, in the elderly, a lot of older people, even if they're not taking stomach acid blocking drugs, have stomachs filled with microbes, mostly stool microbes. Why would you want your probiotic to release into the colon? You want it to release the stomach and the small bowel. A lot of, so there's a lot of problems with commercial probiotics. Beyond the gimmickry, most commercial probiotics are nothing more than haphazard collections of this or that species thrown in together because they think they might be good for you. That's not how you should create a probiotic. One of the things that's not factored into the creation of a commercial probiotic is what's called guild or consortium effects. And all that means is microbes are like humans. You know, Ben has a partner and a family and co-workers and neighbors and uh, you live in a community. Well, the same thing with microbes. They live in communities. So microbe A produces something that microbe B needs. Microbe B produces something microbe C needs. Microbe C produces something microbe A needs. There's co collaboration. If I said to you, Ben, which commercial probiotic product incorporated Gilder Consortium effect? There's only one. <laughs> that was the one for, formulated by my friend, the uh, academic microbiologist, Dr. Raul Cano. And they have a product called Sugar Shift. I have no relationship with them. Uh, and that is a collaborative effect. I'm seeing spectacular effects of that product. Uh, we gave to 20 people in our group, uh, non-diabetics, uh, tracking fasting blood sugars and reduces fasting blood sugar by 9.8 milligrams per deciliter, about 10, uh, which is huge. It's on a par with metformin. I had a recent friend who I think is a lot of a latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood that is not a type 1, but not really a type 2. She was told she was type 2, but she's skinny. She shouldn't have type 2. I think she's an in-between kind. That latent, that LADA form is a type 2 at the start and type 1 after a while because they're killing off their pancreas. Well, I t she was on metformin having fasting glucoses of 120 to 150, 160. I told her, one, get rid of all wheat and grains. That's, that's the initiating factor in a lot of LADA and type 1 diabetes, by the way. It's the gliadin protein of wheat. The initiating factor the autoimmune attack against your pancreas. So I told her to do that. And then to she on her own stopped the metformin, went on the sugar shift. Her fasting glucoses are in the 90s now. So I'm seeing experience like that over and over. But that's the only probiotic where somebody actually said, let's put together a consortium of microbes that collaborate. I think that's the first though in a whole big explosion of similar types of things. And we're having access more and more to more interesting microbes. Imagine if... You know, it may, it may, may turn out that uh, there's a microbe in the mouth called Fusobacterium nucleatum. We all have it, and it just lives there. It doesn't bother you. But if you have bleeding gums, 
or gingivitis or periodontitis, that fusobacterium proliferates and gets into your bloodstream when you floss or brush, and it implants itself into your colon, where it's looking to be the cause for colon cancer. Now, think about that. It means the effort to prevent colon cancer begins in the mouth. Not should not end with a screening colonoscopy. That's stupid. It begins efforts in the mouth, trying to suppress fusobacterium. That's a, that's a work in progress. But this world is exploding and, and yielding. Uh, people at Cedar sinai UCLA, have recently published data. You know, you've heard this before. 90% of all the body's serotonin, if we believe that serotonin is mood supporting, is produced in the GI tract. And it's under the control of microbes. Well, the microbe that is under is controlling most of it is called Teresobacter sanguinis. And uh, imagine that. Imagine we can do something to facilitate the, the serotonin-producing ability of, of, of uh, Teresobacter. Is that the way to deal with depression? So there's a whole bunch of new ideas coming out. And I, I cringe, Ben, to think how little we knew before we started paying attention to the microbiome. Fascinating. Now... The way you're painting these these microbes is like this general well general decision for well-being for everybody. And I always want to acknowledge most things tend to not be a panacea, but I'm curious if you've seen any negative side effects for anybody, or is it just generally always positive? The big side effect that's fairly common is if you have SIBO. So you've got 30 feet of microbes, right? Sending inflammation all throughout your body, and you take a probiotic. Or you take a fiber, like a prebiotic fiber, like onions or garlic or nightshades or um, histamine-containing foods, uh, food intolerances, and you get sick. You take a probiotic and say, oh, I've got bloating and diarrhea and nightmares and skin rashes and asthma and eczema. That's, it's a therapeutic test. If you're intolerant to a probiotic or to a prebiotic fiber it almost and food intolerance, it almost always indicates SIBO. So in that way, if a probiotic is crafted properly, it should not cause problems because it's based on the idea that we're replacing microbes you should have had uh, had all along. So if you let, if you lost rotary because you took amoxicillin when you were 20 for an upper respiratory infection, you're replacing that microbe. If you replace lactobacillus gasseri, very important. Uh, like rotary colonizes the upper GI tract, produces bactericins. It shrinks your waist, reduces inflammation. If you replace bacillus coagulans, that reduces arthritis pain. If you replace bifidobacterium infantis in a baby who lost it because of antibiotics, it can it gets better nutrition because it can digest the human milk oligosaccharides in breast milk, and it will have greater neurological maturation. It will sleep through the night, have fewer bowel movements, more formed. Four bowel movements cut to two per day, fewer diaper changes for mom and dad. And as an older child, less likely to have asthma, type 1 diabetes, autoimmune diseases, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and has a higher IQ. But that's the power, Ben, of replacing these lost microbes. So when you replace them as, as a probiotic, it shouldn't be bad. It should be good. The only exception would be in the severely immunocompromised person. If you said, I'm on, currently on chemotherapy, radiation for my cancer, or I have an uh, a, a immunosuppressive condition, genetic condition, that's where you can have problems with introducing microbes like probiotics. But in normal people who don't have immunocompromised states, there should not be problems with these replacing these microbes. Now, that said, there's some not very wisely formulated probiotics I'm starting to see come out that have not been tested for safety, and I'm seeing problems with them. I'm seeing that with the, the soil-based microbes, the spore formers, and I'm seeing with some other new products that have not been properly created. Some of them, for instance, have stool microbes. That's really dumb. You don't want to put stool microbes in your probiotic. Brilliant. So I think I know what every young parent is getting in their Christmas, in their stocking for Christmas. They're once <laughs> getting this. I mean, your grandfather, that's what I gave my uh, my son and his, his wife. Awesome. Wayne, congratulations. As long as you could share your recipe, if you're open to it, I know you have a very specific formula for kind of, because what you said was the rudery that you get from gastrus is very low concentration and we want to make it a couple hundred billion. So if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to just kind of share exactly how you do that. So by the way, Ben, before people get overwhelmed, what I tell them is, so pretend you're going to a restaurant and the waitress hands you a menu. You don't freak out 
and yell, I can't order all these appetizers and main dishes and desserts. You pick and choose the dishes you want. We're doing the same thing here. If you want a healthier baby, better nutrition, better neurological development, all that, let's let's make yogurt out of bifidobacter infantis. If you want to reduce joint pain, let's ferment bacillus coagulans, one of the most tasty yogurts of all, by the way. If you want smoother skin, increased libido, uh, return of youthful muscle and strength, deeper sleep, let's ferment lactobacillus ruteri. If you want to be faster and smarter and happier, let's ferment lactobacillus brevis because it produces uh, methylamine, trimethylamine. In other words, you can choose the microbe for the effect you want. So what we do is, I, I start with, hmm? or just all of them together. You could, but you won't get the same numbers. And think of it like a backyard garden. If all you plant is zucchini in your 10 by 10 plot, you'd have tons of zucchini. What if you plant zucchini and watermelon and squash and tomatoes? <laughs> you have fewer zucchini. So it's the same thing here. When there's competition, you just, and you can do that, but you just accept lesser numbers. Sometimes numbers do count. We need better science there. We're performing some of it, so-called dose response. So there's a recent trial, for instance, paid, uh, funded by BioGaia using their strain of Rotori, the 6475 strain, and they gave it to ladies, 10 billion counts per day, older ladies, and the ladies who got placebo had much worsening of their osteoporosis. The ladies who got Rotori, 10 billion per day, had 50% less bone loss in that one year span. And that's all they did. There was no other drug or calcium or D or nothing. Um, so now, if that happened for 10 billion, what would have happened with 50 billion or 100 billion? Nobody knows. So we're trying to fund some of that stuff. It's very expensive to get dose response. But I think the world is moving towards the idea that it really takes a lot of microbes to have a big effect, probably on the order of 50 billion or so per day. It varies the microbe, of course, too. Uh, where were we? <laughs> sharing a recipe if we could, or oh, yes. a formula for how you do it. So uh, one of the things I do is I start with organic half and half. I reject this idea that we must cut fat and saturate fat. So we don't, if you believe, if you agree with me, no skim milk, no reduced fat milk, half and half, typically 18% fat with no added ingredients, no gel and gum, no xanthan gum, no carrageenan, none of that gun nonsense because it interferes with the fermentation process. We take whatever microbe we want to choose. If it's the gastrous tablets made for babies, we take 10 tablets, put it in a plastic bag or something like that and crush them with a heavy jar, bottle, mortar and pestle, rolling pin, whatever, fragment them into little pebbles. Or let's say you want to do Bifidobacter infantis, you buy the Avivo. That's the one that's been best studied, EVIVO. Or if you want to do the um, uh, gastrus, we use the BNR17 uh, strain. That comes from Joe Mercola has it. He, he, he bought it from the manufacturer in Korea, paid a lot of money. And you can buy it as the BioThin product. You need about 2 billion counts of microbes to get started. So it depends on if your probiotic contains 10 billion, you don't even need a whole capsule. You just need a little bit, right? If you have the BioGuide tablets with 200 million of it, we have to do 10 tablets to get to 2 billion. So roughly 2 billion, we mix it in there. We toss in a little bit of prebiotic fiber. And all that means is something that microbes like to eat. It's like throwing cow manure on your, <laughs> on your vegetable garden. You're just going to have bigger tomatoes. <laughs> so we add a little of inulin, for instance, or raw potato starch, stir it in, and then we... You need some device to keep it at about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Different microbes like different temperatures, meaning they proliferate better. But most of the microbes in the lactobacillus and bifidobacteria genus, those groups of microbes, prefer human body temperature. So around 97 to 100, 36, 37 uh, Celsius, and we let it sit there for 36 hours because we want repeated uh, doublings of that microbe. That's how we get to the hundreds of billions. So you need a device like a yogurt maker or a sous vide stick or basin sous vide, a um, instant pot, even a dehydrator. If you have a device that has a preset temperature though, you want to validate the temperature. So it's, let's say it's a yogurt maker and it's just preset to some temperature. You want to run it for a while, maybe with, a, with some water in the container or something, and a thermometer it and see what the temperature is. Because rotori and some of those microbes can die at around 110 degrees. 
And so some people had failures because of that, because their instant pot was set too high or something like that. So it sounds complicated. It's not complicated. It's very, very easy. I've made over a hundred batches of rotary alone. I've never had a failure. And by the way, most of these yogurts are rich, thick, and delicious. And you'll never go back to store-bought yogurt again. And how do you know when it's done? I know we know a time thing, but it's like, is there a specific texture or a specific like end result we're looking for? I think I've heard you say it like separates. I just want to make sure we're, we're, we have the details. There's an odd thing, Ben. You, you can only learn by just doing a lot of this, uh, I, what I call the first batch effect. If you make the first batch, it typically separates the curds and whey, solids and liquid. It's the second batch that you make from some of the first batch. And you can use the curds or the whey or both to make your second batch. It's, set, it's the second and subsequent batches that are rich and thick. It's that first batch that's kind of creepy and separated. You can still eat it, but it's gonna be kind of separated. For that reason, if someone does not wanna waste that first batch, you can make a small test batch, maybe in an eight ounce jar or something like that. And they use a little bit of that. You can toss that without losing too much and make subsequent batches. People tend to make this too hard. It's really very, very simple. I do have a, a blog post in my drdavesinfinitehealth.com blog. It's like troubleshooting that. troubleshooting L. Rotari yogurt. I, I talk about L. Rotari, that's the most popular one, but there's all kinds of other yogurts you can make for other, other effects. And by the way, we also have what I call currently SIBO yogurt. Hmm. It's the combination of Lactobacillus rotari, Lactobacillus gasseri, and Bacillus coagulans. Combine those three, co-fermented for 36 hours. I, I chose especially the rotari and the gasseri because they colonize the upper GI tract where SIBO occurs and produce bactericins, effective against most of the species of SIBO. Well, so far, Ben, out of 40 people who've done this, 90% have tested negative on the air device. Yeah. We'll perform a form of clinical trial to prove it. That's that this whole, but so far, so rather than having taken an antibiotic for your SIBO or even an herbal antibiotic, it's looking like we have the most effective thing at all, of all so far in anecdotal experience. Uh, that seems to normalize SIBO. And it's, you know, if, if I said you need to have a colectomy or some invasive procedure, we better be damn confident this is necessary. But what if the solution is a form of yogurt? You know? That restores species you were supposed to have anyway. So I think the bar is low for doing this. Awesome. And so that procedure makes one batch, and then you would extrapolate a little percentage of that to then replicate and make more? Is that the thought process? Yeah. A tablespoon or two of curds or whey or both. Some some people try to avoid the whey. You know, one of the effects of what, so people who like to train like the whey protein because it stimulates insulin. Well, those of us who don't want to be insulin resistant don't like to have insulin stimulate. So some of us will pour off the whey or strain it through cheesecloth or a coffee filter to let the whey fall out um, because the whey is insulinotropic, it provokes insulin. And so that's Greek yogurt, by the way. You can do that also. But some people will take that whey liquid and then freeze it like an ice cube tray and use a couple ice cubes to start the next batch. So lots of tricks to do getting this done. But the key here is to restore microbes at very high counts. And that's, I think, the reason why we're getting these huge biological effects. Amazing. Dr. Davis, we talked about a lot. I'm curious if there's something else that we've missed that would be you know, important for us to discuss before we kind of pass on it and tell our audience where they can learn more from you. Well, we talked about SIBO yogurt, rudderite. So the, the key here is, this is evolving, Ben. It's not like I have all the answers, but it's evolving at breakneck speed. And so what I'm saying today may be different in three months, six months. Maybe we have better ways to do these things. And I think that's going to be true, by the way. Uh, I think we're getting to a point where we're close to this. Not quite there, but close. If someone says, I have Parkinson's disease, we say, here's the microbial solution to it. I have depression. Here's the microbial solution to it. I have fibromyalgia. Here's the microbial solution to it, not the pharmaceutical solution to it. And now I'm starting to see, I have not performed any of these trials, but I'm starting to see trials where they're comparing pharmaceuticals to microbiome strategies. And I'm seeing the microbiome strategies outperform. And of course, when we do these kinds of things, 
when no one's charging you thousands of dollars. You know, these biologics now, like uh, Tremphia is for uh, psoriatic arthritis, is $12,500 per month. Okay. And it can cause liver damage, irreversible liver damage. You can die of this drug. We're, now we're talking about now restoring lost microbes with spectacular effects mm. that have virtually no downside, except maybe the effort to make your yogurt or something like that, yeah. but no real downside. Now, by the way, if you do ferment these things, it doesn't have to be dairy, it doesn't have to be yogurt. It could be, I fermented hummus, mm. salsa, fruit purees, juices, veggies, of course. Uh, and of course, there's commercial stuff you can buy too, kimchi, kefirs, yogurts, but what, what we what I do with commercially fermented foods, like so let's say kimchi or maybe fermented pickles uh, or sauerkraut, is leave it on the kitchen counter for at least 48 hours. Let it ferment further because commercial production is all about going as fast as possible. They don't want to let something ferment for two weeks. Right. Uh, so I leave it out in the kitchen counter if I'm going to rely on a commercial product, not my own home product. So that, that that's, that's something to know. And by the way, one of the most important things people do is not take a commercial probiotic. It's it's include fermented foods. This thing we all stopped doing about 1927, 1928, when Frigidaire came out with Freon, an expensive way to make home refrigeration affordable. And everybody stopped making fermented food. In fact, most modern people now think of fermented foods as rotten. So, but a return to fermented foods is the thing you want to do. And if, if you have access to a smart probiotic like Sugar Shift, that's worth doing. And then, of course, all the fibers and other things that nourish microbes, like vegetable matter, asparagus, onions, shallots, garlic, uh, et cetera. So people who want more information, all these recipes, all these concepts, as you know, are in the Super Gut book, which is available everywhere. I, I try to make a lot of this available through my blog, which is drdavisinfinitehealth.com. I convert it from the very busy wheat belly blog, because we're getting away from wheat belly now. <laughs> It's called drdavisinfinitehealth.com blog. There's also a very busy, there's a membership forum and a membership uh, inner circle. Like, like tonight, I'm going to have a two-hour, two-way Zoom with about 80 to 90 people. And we talk about these kinds of things. They say, my yogurt didn't turn out. Why? <laughs> or uh, I need to get better sleep. Is there a microbe that helps me sleep better? Or I, I want to hire testosterone. What microbe can raise my testosterone? So we're having all, that's all in the inner circle. That's amazing. So, uh, Dr. Davis, I work with a lot of men in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. We're all looking to optimize performance and, and at every level. And so, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind sharing kind of what your daily nutrition would look like just, you know, for, for optimization of longevity and health from, with someone at your level of experience and knowledge. So, you know, we eat when we're hungry, which sounds stupid, right? But in other words, we don't say, <laughs> we don't just say, you know, eat three squares a day. Or, no, reject all that nonsense. Think of, so if if uh, your client was a not a moderate person, but a person living in the wild, he'd grab his spear, axe, or club, go kill something. Maybe it took him six hours to track that animal down. He opens the abdomen, eats the intestines and stomach raw, drags it back to camp, skins it, saves the skin for shoes and for clothing, roasts it over fire, eats the cracks open the skull, eats the brain, thyroid, tongue, heart, uterus, spleen, kidneys, and the meat, <laughs> saves the carcass oh. left over, <laughs> boils it to make soups and stews, and that releases the co uh, collagen and the hyal more hyaluronic acid. So you get all your nutrients that way, and you eat some plant matter. You dig in the dirt for roots and tubers, you gather seasonal berries, you maybe gather, gather some nuts, mushrooms, bird's eggs. So we kind of mimic that. Now, no one here is going to grab an axe or spear or club and kill something today, nor dig in the dirt. So we go to our modern equivalents. We try to eat meats. We never trim off the fat, never buy lean cuts, always buy the full fat cuts. Uh, fish, chicken, of course, other poultry, other fish, vegetable matter. Uh, we try to avoid the really starchy stuff like potatoes because there is a problem with insulin resistance in North America. So all the vegetables fermented as often as possible. It's, it's wise to include, a ferment. what I try to do is a fermented food in every meal, if not more. That really helps. And a prebiotic fiber or related polysaccharide, onions, garlic, inulin powder, long lists in every meal. So that you're getting 
uh, reimplantation of microbes and nutrition with each meal. So it could be three eggs with sausage and maybe a side of little kimchi on the side. It's really, really very simple. Most of us have gone back to two meals a day or one main meal, one minor meal. Because when you get rid of gli the gliadin protein in wheat, you thereby get rid of gliadin-derived opioid peptides that are very powerful appetite stimulants. So many people, when they go wheat and grain-free, say, I'm not hungry anymore. I have breakfast at seven. I'm not hungry till about five. And if you throw in the roideri and its ability to provoke oxytocin, that further reduces your appetite, especially for snacking. So what this does is it puts you back in control over diet. You're not tempted by the garbage donuts at the office or that kind of stuff. So we never limit fat. Don't go for meats, organs whenever possible, as much as you can tolerate. Vegetable matter, no processed foods, of course, ferment your foods. That's awesome. Where do you stand on alcohol? Primates are adapted to alcohol. You know, this, this observation has been made. If you and I went to the interior of, of Africa, we would once in a while come across a, a, a tribe of uh, orangutan, bonobos, or chimpanzees who are wild, throwing things, throwing fruit, and laughing and jumping because they're drunk because they eat fermented or rotten fruit. And so the shared ancestor to the great apes and us, so we're going back hundreds of millions of years, uh, millions of years, developed a genetic mutation, a variant that makes us tolerant to alcohol. Many of us, not all of us. And so, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the effects of alcohol. A lot of that uh, evidence is observational. Uh, ben, that's worth talking about, Ben. A lot of the evidence in nutrition is what's called observational evidence. I say, Ben, what'd you eat for breakfast on Monday? You say, well, oh man, I, I had a bowl of oatmeal <laughs> with some berries. What'd you have for lunch? Uh, I think, this is just goofing around. I, I think I had a sandwich with uh, some beef and some mayonnaise. And then we tabulate your, you know this, these food questionnaires. And then seven, 10 years later, I contacted Ben, how are you? You say I'm alive or I had colon cancer or I had heart disease, whatever. And then you try to predict whether your diet that is called garbage science, yet that is what uh, a lot of public health officials rely on to craft such things as dietary guidelines. You cannot do that because that data is extremely weak. It's virtually uh, uh, useless. That's the basis for the dietary guidelines. And so this unfortunately means that, the, but it's also responsible for a lot of the garbage headlines. Coffee extends life by four years. No, it doesn't. That's ridiculous. Uh, uh, eating red meat causes colon cancer. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but it's, this is all observational evidence, yet it's often regarded as good science by media and by even by a lot of scientists and colleagues. When we know with good evidence, you cannot use observational evidence as the basis for developing gut. Same is true for alcohol. If I said, you know, Ben, I'm going to put you in a clinical trial and we're going to randomize you either, either to a pint of vodka a day or two glasses of red wine a day, or none at all. No one's going to do it for five to 10 years to see who has more heart disease, dementia, colon cancer, because it's just impossible to corral humans to do something like this. So we have to go by observational evidence, which means I say, Ben, how much did you drink this past week? Well, I had a glass of wine on Monday, then I had a beer on Thursday. And then we ask you in five to 10 years, what became of you? Garbage science. So I, I think it's clear that alcohol in modest quantities is not harmful, and it may be beneficial. I, I hesitate to say that, but, but clearly there's a limit. You can do bad things. I've, I've taken care of my share of alcoholics in very bad shape. Dr. William Davis, thank you so much, sir. Author of Super Gut, author of Undoctored, author of Wheat Belly, all New York Times bestselling books, and just incredible information shared today. So much actionable stuff the audience is going to love. Uh, I'm super grateful for you making time for us today, sir. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for all your hard work and getting the message out. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for being here. I know that there's a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of information for you to choose from and you choose to be here with me. I have so much respect for you and your journey to optimize your health, your well-being, ultimately create enough energy and vitality so you can thrive. Being healthy at the level of the gut is just one incredibly important aspect 
of everything that goes into your health. There must be an aspect of the environment that we're in just being adhered to or being paid attention to. There must be movement. There must be sleep. There must be nutritional optimization. So many facets go into this. And that's why I continue to search the internet, search the world for the world's greatest experts to help you, to help me live our greatest life in a body that we absolutely love and ultimately look good in the process. Ladies and gents, thanks for being here. Ben Pekulski and the Muscle Intelligence Podcast out. If you're not already subscribed, do that right now on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also leave us up to a five-star review, both on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. If you're listening to this podcast or watching this podcast on YouTube, how's it going? I'm waving. And uh, thank you for being here. Leave us a review. Leave us a comment if there's anything you want to say about the podcast or any guests you want to see in the future. I'd love to hear from you. Have an amazing day. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.